Hello everyone, welcome to Ubi Estimia. My name is Brandon Weatherby. This episode is with former Chicagoan, current Baltimore resident, Larry Doyle. You may not know the name Larry Doyle, but you've definitely heard of shows like The Simpsons and Beavis and Butthead and Daria. Heard of magazines like National Lampoon and Spy. And uh, maybe you even know some graphic novels like I Love You, Beth Cooper. Larry's a fantastic writer, and he was kind enough to meet me at the Rock and Roll Club DC9 before he had a show. Uh, we're going to start off with a conversation, and we're going to jump right into it. We are currently talking about his time at National Lampoon. So, in any case, it was uh, uh, maybe the, uh, the first time that I tried to revive something that somebody else had done. And, you know, I should have learned my lesson, <laughs> but I didn't. Um, A lot of your career has been doing... Touch, <laughs> Playing with things that somebody else created. Yeah, and and as a result, I've I like touched on a lot of different things. You yeah, know? I mean, uh, some of which, you know, in my semi defense, I didn't outright kill like Pogo. No one said you killed anything. But you know, I was at uh, the National Lampoon when they tried to bring it back, and I was at Spy Magazine for a couple of years. Although we were doing well. Yeah. Um, this is in the early nineties when you were at Spy, yeah. correct? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, then. You know, I went to The Simpsons, which at the time I was afraid that we were killing the show because a lot of people were complaining that it was the worst ever and all that. So that was like late nineties, early aughts. That was the yeah uh, through season twelve. Okay. And, and I thought that was the season like twenty eight. Twenty eight, I think, is coming out next year. So I clearly didn't um, uh, kill it. Um, and then I tried to do Looney Tunes, which did not go well. So I remember work. I think I was working in a movie theater when that came out. In two thousand three, yeah, yeah, I think I, the one with Brendan Fraser. And yeah, you seem thrilled by that. Uh, I've decided to not talk anymore about <laughs> the quality of anything that has happened that I've done. Well, after that, you published something that was critically acclaimed that got made into a movie. Yes, and it was really personal and not Looney Tunes characters, not the Simpsons characters, right. and it traces you back to the suburbs of Chicago. Yeah, in fact, it was one of those things where I was thinking like. Okay, I can make up my own suburb that's like my suburb. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, screw that. You know? So how old were you when you wrote the book? So, uh, I think it was about 48. You were like 48 when you were writing about your high school experience. Right. So roughly 30 years right. distance. Were you worried that any classmates would read it and associate it with themselves? Um, well, some of them did, and they often, all of them speculated on who was who, you know. And... Um, and it's it was it, it's weird because I went back there, so. Well, where's there? Uh, Buffalo Grove, thank you. Uh, which is a suburb northwest um, by Arlington Heights, which people might know more. But anyway, it, it I tried to make it so that it could both be the place I grew up in and current. So there are parts of it that exist in Buffalo Grove now, the McMansion areas of Buffalo Grove, and there's a road mentioned in it that used to exist but is now a McMansion you know so yeah. I just pick and chose whatever I need a story so it's not a completely accurate Buffalo Grove um, on the other hand like when they do things like they're driving down the street and looking at stores those are the actual stores at that year and, and I went to Buffalo Grove High School and I they had changed the physical layout a bit so I changed that when, when people would ask you where you're from and you're living in New York or you're living in Los Angeles would you say Chicago or would you say Buffalo Grove um, or well, I, which, I should ask you now where are you from 
if it's a shorthand, I'm going to say Chicago. But okay. if they really want to know where I'm from, I'll usually say a suburb of Chicago. And in which case, really means I just grew up in a suburb because yeah. the suburb of Chicago didn't have any Chicago flavor to it. No. <laughs> you know, it could have just easily been in Iowa or Missouri. Well, well, you were in high school. Did you go to the city? Did you ever venture? We almost never went into the city when I was a kid. My dad liked every once in a while on a Sunday after church, he would drive us into the city and drive us down Skid Row. Just to just teach you a lesson? No, I don't know. We thought to see the bombs or something. I'm sure it was, you know, kind of like this can happen to you. you know, but instead you just viewed it as like this is oh, fun. Uh, yeah, look at all these guys lying on the sidewalk. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to remember what road that was. It's, it doesn't exist anymore. But it was a, it was where Richard Speck, you know, the hotel he was uh, picked up at and uh, and stuff like that. A lot of Chicago doesn't exist. I was thinking um, for this interview, I was thinking yeah. one of my favorite experiences. Uh, my my roommate Ted Cox and I used to live in Wrigleyville, um, right across the street from the park, with the so you know the L rattling behind us. We were on. Uh, Sheffield, um, and we both worked at UPI, and uh, often one of us would get off at midnight, and the other one would get off at 2 a.m., and so we would go to the only nearby 4 o'clock bar, which used to be, I don't remember the name of the hotel, you can probably find this out, it used to be sort of behind uh, the Wrigley Building. It was a big hotel, and it was an old hotel, and now... When you say the Wrigley Building, do you mean the Wrigley Building downtown? The downtown Wrigley Building. Okay. Right. We were on Stoke Container Building, which was just across the river from there. Okay. And, I mean, we would occasionally go to, you know, the uh, Billy Goat, but, but this was like a four o'clock bar. We went there, and I'm sure I'm getting some of these details wrong, but you look on the walls and you see all of these famous black performers, and it turns out that this hotel had been the hotel where the black performers had to stay when anyone came to town. Yeah. Um, and we would go there, and you'd, there'd be heroin addicts in there and stuff. And, and uh, the entertainment was a guy, he was a white guy, named Eddie Shum. And his act was called Eddie Shum and His Chums. And Eddie Shum would play the piano and the accordion at the same time. And it turned out that his chums was anybody in town who was playing somewhere else, and they were off, and they would come in and play with them. So it'd be like... Hey, that's Buddy Guy. And we would see Buddy Guy, we saw Buddy Waters on us. Um, but after this one particular night, um, we get on the subway, and it's probably around 4.30 or 5 in the morning, and uh, we're on the subway, at, or the L. Um, it was subway at that point, but in the ground at that area. Anyway, we were on the L, and as is my habit, if I see any material anywhere, I can sort of pick it up. So I pick up a copy of the Chicago Defender. And on the one page is a story about this dude who had turned himself into the police. Um, it was sort of customary in that age, although kind of current now, that a lot of times black offenders would call this one newscaster, I can't remember his name right now, and he would accompany them to the police station. You can imagine why, that he didn't want a rough ride, mm-hmm. so to speak, to the police station. So anyway... So I'm reading this, and so there's a picture of the newscaster and the guy on the front page, and I lower the page, and the guy is sitting across from me on the, the train, the car. And he just, like, gives me this big smile. Like, you know, like, 
I, I, I think all I said is, so do you do it? <laughs> Did yes. he yeah. No, man. <laughs> I can do shit, man. Um, but that was the kind of thing that could happen. How uh, old were you? Do you remember? Uh, I was probably around uh, 24. Okay, perfect age for that to yeah, happen. Not yeah. too young, not too old. Yeah. You could easily get in trouble, but you'll probably be fine. Yeah, well, there were a lot of, you know, we used to do stuff like... Um, uh, there used to be a place called Maxwell Street Dogs, um, which was at Maxwell Street and maybe Grand. It's where the yeah. University of Illinois has, is. has expanded to. Yeah, I think you could still see it from the highway, actually. Right. Well, that whole area was turned down and turned into, you know, like an animal science building or something. But it was open all night long, and it was just this giant barbecue, steaming onions and pork chops and hot dogs. And we used to get, like, these you know, hot dogs that snap when you bit into them. And we would get them slabbed with onions and, and the hottest peppers you could possibly imagine. And just, we'd eat them and sweat would pour it down your face. Just, and uh, I'm not sure there's a place like that anymore. A- anywhere in the country, probably? Well, no, I mean, maybe in the, maybe in the South there are probably a lot yeah. of places like that. But um, it was also one of those places where... Um, not that it's any different, but Chicago at that time was pretty segregated. Um, you know, it wasn't officially segregated, but, you know, black people didn't live in white neighborhoods and white people generally didn't live in black neighborhoods. But that was a place where, like, everybody came and you were all there together. And no one felt like an interloper, like, if you decided to go to a blues club on the south side or something. When did you decide you had to move to New York? Um... I decided I had to move to New York when um, someone in New York offered me a job. If that job hadn't come up, do you think you would have ever left Chicago? I think I probably would have. Uh, I had a long history of a, uh, a, a, a girlfriend broke up with me and I sort of fell apart for many years or decades afterwards. And it was becoming increasingly more difficult for me to be in Chicago because everyone was getting married and I was single and I was 30 and, um, and they were all at social events that she would be at. And so when I had this opportunity to go to New York, I, I took it. And uh, that worked out okay. <laughs> um, do you feel like your opportunities opened up more that you were in New York, or your opportunities got expanded because you were no longer seeing the person? Oh no, that was clearly because I was in New York. Um, what happened was I wrote a, a piece that got in the New Yorker, my first piece in the New Yorker, which is about her, um, called "Life Without Leanne," a newsletter, and and that got the attention of a guy um, named Randy Cohen, who was a writer at Letterman at the time. He was the inventor of the monkey cam, among other things. And he wrote me a letter and for said... The, for really quick, I'm sorry to interrupt. For the listener at home, what's on your shirt? Oh, it's just a monkey. Here. Okay, it's that's a, all. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a, a clapping monkey. That's all. I just... Um, I often don't know what shirt I'm wearing. It's fair. Pile or, uh, but uh, he, he wrote and said, if I wanted to submit to Letterman, you know, that would be great. And so I made a package for Letterman, and I didn't get it. Um, but he... Uh, uh, sent it on to a friend of his who was trying to get people to write for something that was then called Ha, which was one half of what eventually became Comedy Central. There was something called the Comedy Channel and Ha, and they eventually merged, and they were the Comedy Channel. But at this point, they were separate, and they were both pathetic. And so I got on a talk show there, and... Um, 
What was the talk show? It was called After Drive, and, and it was based... After Drive? After Drive. You, no one really remembers it. Um, it was based on a weird premise, which is they had a studio that they were doing a comedy variety show, right? Uh-huh. Once a week comedy variety show um, called Random Acts of Variety, I think, something like that. None of these shows last until the... I, I, I doubt they're even on YouTube, you know, that's how... No one's bothered to put any of this on YouTube. Um, but uh, uh, they had uh, hired Freddie Silverman at some extraordinary cost, and he suggested that as long as they had this studio, they should run a strip talk show that they could tape when they're down. That makes sense. Right? So that's the whole reason why this talk show existed. And they decided they wanted, like, this clashing personality thing. So they had um, Dennis Leary, who everybody knows now, and Billy Kimball, who at the time was kind of a big comedy presence from Harvard. He ended up starting the Indecision shows, you know, that became kind of... Daily Show? The Daily Show. Um, but he didn't He didn't work with Jon Stewart. But like, the earlier incarnations. And... Um, and they put the two of them together, and they thought you know, it'd be like, you know, Ice and Fire, Dennis Leary, blah, blah, blah. but it was basically Dennis Leary, this guy from Boston, and, and you know, Billy Kimball, this guy from a little place also in Boston. They, they turned to degree on just about everything. Yeah, that's uh, not fun. Um, and, uh, and Dennis Leary proved to be a, a whole hell of a lot smarter than I think they thought he like better read. And, well, he's... He's brash. You don't usually associate brash, but he, him. He's brash, but he also... I believe, well, I know from having talked to him, he that's a deliberate thing. And if you talk to him, you don't get that persona. Yeah. So you were over 30 by the time you had your first TV job. Yes. Do you, is that uncommon? That's very uncommon. Are and you, it's not the right way to do it. It's not the right way to do it. Right. You've had a lot of success for not doing it the right way. But really old. I mean, I was, what, 48 when my first novel was published. When I went to The Simpsons, I was already kind of too old to be hired in Hollywood. Really? By what they say. Should I ask your age or is that inappropriate? Now? Yeah. You can figure it out from everything. I'm uh, 57. Okay. I never really thought necessarily that television was what I wanted to do. Yeah. I really think what I wanted to do was a great version of the National Lampoon or Spy or something like that or write novels. Which you're doing now. Right. Um, The other thing I wanted to do was I wanted to be one of those guys who was squirreled away in a New Yorker office who just worked on little things, you know, by himself. Um, so the but first, that, that job didn't exist anymore when I got there. Well, I mean, you're, it is weird that your first piece, like, that that was sort of big, quote-unquote big, is in the New Yorker. Yeah. And you still have pieces in the New Yorker. Yeah, not lately, because I haven't sent any in lately. But. Do you think, <laughs> so that's the only reason why you're not in the New Yorker right now, it's just because you haven't sent them in. I don't think I've sent them anything in a couple of years. Why not? Um... I've been writing, trying to write this one book that's taking forever. Do you um, feel like you ever have writer's block? Or is that just a fallacy? Yeah, sometimes. Um, I, I, it, it's not so much that you have writer's block so much as you have, you know, uh, a distraction plus. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. That, that uh, you're prone to distraction. Because it's not like, if I sit down and I write, I can write. But before the moment that I start to write, there's all sorts of things that can keep me from writing. Sure. Has children changed that at all? Has it made it easier or more difficult? It's definitely made it more complicated um, because uh, it, I mean, the problem is my circumstances have changed throughout the years. Now, I just write. I don't have some other job that I have to do. So I do have 
a period of time, which is larger than most people who write have, mm -hmm. to write in. Um, at the same time, they get home from school at three, and you know, I'm pretty much done. Like you're, you take care of them. You can't write anymore. Uh, it's not. It, it's I don't feel like it. Oh, you'd rather see your children. Right, right. That's a nice thing. You know, um, and and so I don't really spend a lot of work time after they get home. Um, at the same time, I used to work all the time. Um, when I was at New York Magazine, when I was at Spy Magazine, when I was at Spy and I was at National Improvement, I was probably at those places 18 to 20 hours a day. Um, and at New York Magazine, I was there an awful lot. When I wasn't there, I was at home writing something else for somebody else. Were you single at the time? Yeah. I'm sure that made it a lot easier. Yeah, that made it a lot easier because, you know, I don't have to, Yeah. you know. How did you meet your wife? Um, I went to uh, a wedding of her, boy her boyfriend's wedding, and uh, it was out in the woods. The Pines, is that the name of the place out there? Sure. Pines. It was in Illinois. Oh, okay. Um, and... Uh, she had uh, come to the wedding, her name's Becky, by the way, uh, with uh, a Vera Wang wedding dress in the trunk of her car. Um, that sounds horrible. It was just a joke. Um, that sounds delightful. The, uh, the, uh, but she had, at some point, gone to a uh, you know, filings basement sale and mm. saw this dress and decided to get it anyway. You know, why not? It's $7,000 off or whatever it was. And... But she took it as a joke because uh, Miles, her boyfriend, I guess ex-boyfriend, um, uh, his wife wasn't wearing a wedding dress. And so uh, all of her friends were like, we'll pay you $400 if you will <laughs> you sit there. And so she, um, she came there and, you know, vulnerable. I took full advantage of that. Um, also, by virtue of the fact that she knew all of the guys, none of them were going to be making any kind of play for her, pretty much. Meanwhile, Miles had another ex-girlfriend there who was an actress from Los Angeles. And I had been to Los Angeles and I had dated actresses, so I knew better than... So it was one of these things where at the at the party you would see like these... It was almost like a ritual, these eight guys sort of dancing around that And so I was able to talk to Becky and... Um, Have you and Becky been together ever since? Yep. Uh, 20, 20 years in August. That is so nice to hear. Yeah. So she is she also from Illinois? No, she is from Baltimore. And that's and, why you live in Baltimore. Right. We are living in the house she grew up in. We bought it from her parents. Um, are you enjoying that? Uh, I like the house a lot. Um, it took a lot of getting used to being in Baltimore because I didn't know anybody. Yeah. And I still like to go to New York and Los Angeles and get together with the people that I know. If you could live anywhere, where would you live? Uh, Kaczynski's cabin's gone, right? They, they put it in, it's now the museum or something. Technically, you're in the city that it is. It's in the museum. It's in the museum, right. yeah. Um, so not there. <laughs> Chicago, but you know the problem with any of these things is uh, things exist not only as a place, but as a time, you know, and as not only a time of that place, but the time of you. There have been a couple of times where I've been back in New York or in Chicago for a long time, and it's not my Chicago anymore. Yeah. And, and it's not just that it's changed, but mm -hmm. it's that I'm not 24 anymore. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so a lot of things that um, it feels hard to like get connected to it again. 
Yeah. Do you have any family out there still? Yeah, my um, my parents and my brother and sister both live in Naperville, and I have another brother who lives up in Fox Lake. Where's your 16-year-old thinking about school, or is your 16-year-old thinking about school? He's not thinking about it enough. He, he visited University of Chicago, that. Um, Do you know what he's interested in studying? It seems more and more like he wants to write. And what do you think about that? Um, I, you know, it was funny because one of the things that always happened with my parents was uh, that I had to have a reliable job. Okay. So the idea was I was going to go to college and become a doctor. And, you know, there are a lot of doctors who write. I didn't know that. I didn't um, think of that. Well, yeah, Michael Crichton was a doctor. Sure. I went to University of Illinois as a pre-med, and I ended up graduating with a degree in um, biology and psychology, and I went to grad school in uh, uh, clinical psychology for a while. But you ended up with a master's in journalism. Because I, I did not like psychology. Um, it was a very bad time for psychology where... Um, Everybody was mentally ill. You know, that was your badge of honor to say that there was something wrong with you and therefore you could act the way you were acting. A lot of people who are explaining their poor behavior based on something their mother did or their father did. Do you feel like that's changed at um, I don't think it is, much, is as much of the culture as it was in the late 70s, early 80s. Okay. Um, I don't see as many people doing that. In New York, you see a lot of people. Okay. But that's because psychiatry is still really big in New York, and it's not really anywhere else. Not in Baltimore? No. I mean, psychiatry itself is sort of falling by the wayside. Um, when you got your master's in journalism, what did you think you were going to do with it? Uh, well, I always wanted to write funny things, but there wasn't a lot of... Uh, then why get a master's in journalism, then? I got a master's in journalism because I wanted to... Uh, I was able to edit the uh, the weekly magazine at the newspaper, and you had to be in school to do that. So I decided to get a master's. <laughs> it's not the worst way to get No, a but it really was. I wanted to stay around another year to do that thing in school, and I did, and I really enjoyed doing it. So I became the... Uh, I was a very good student as an undergraduate, and but it, when I was doing the master's journalism, I was the worst student imaginable. I did several of those kind of things that you only come to in a nightmare, like... Uh, I got woken up once by a friend of mine, and she's like, where were you? I go, what do you mean? We, we had the midterm. <laughs> and the reason why I didn't know that we had the midterm was because um, I had never gone to class. That's a good reason not to know when you have a midterm. There, there was only one t- I worked in this magazine, and I pretty much, we closed on Thursday night, and I usually didn't go to bed from Monday to Thursday. And then I'd wake up sometimes Saturday. Um, and I can't do that now, but the only one time I remember going to his class was, I go to the class, and it's a big class, and he said, he's asking about what people think of the reading, and he goes, Mr. Doyle, what did you think of the reading? I go, I don't know, it was the reading. And he said a couple of things, and I started talking about them, and he was like, he, he made some thing like, well, you know, since you're never here, I didn't know that you would know what the reading but I didn't know what they were doing. Any person who's interested in journalism would have read those pieces. It was Frank Sinatra has a cold. But I wonder now, like, if your children go into the magazine at their 
college, are they going to be up Monday through Thursday? Is it going to be that intensive? Or is it going to be more, we need to get clicks right away? Let's just oh, I, you know, I don't know what it's like now, because the last time I really worked in it was at New York Magazine. But there we didn't have, you know, the, the letter press issue. We were, mm-hmm. you know, uh, makeup. But we did have the, and this is somewhat good of anybody who is a good journalist, the idea of getting as close to the deadline as you can, not being satisfied until you have to be satisfied. So, so we would still work those crazy hours. Um, uh, but I would do, on when I was in college, I would be doing paste-up, and, and I learned how to use the camera, and so I would fiddle around trying to get different effects of the camera, and there's all this stuff like that to do at 4 o'clock in the morning. Do you feel like that's uh, translated into your professional life, just never being satisfied and waiting until the last possible moment to turn something in? No. One of the things, except for this last project, I got very good when I was at uh, UPI of meeting deadlines because your deadline was every minute. You know, you had to, and I got very good at being able to write on command. Um, And so I almost never missed a deadline on a screenplay. Um, I had crazy deadlines in the first two novels, and I made both of those. Um, just because you make deadlines, I guess. Yeah. Who were some of the people that you really enjoyed in the comic scene in the 80s in Chicago? Uh, well, uh, Close was there. He, he was, I only met him once or twice, but he was great. Um, I worked for a while at a comic book company. I don't know if you knew that, First Comics. Um, and so we got to use everybody, you know. So I, you know, one of the best guys I remember working with was Kyle Baker, who still, he does animation now on the West Coast, but he was one of the best uh, comics guy there, you know, and we had Frank Miller was doing covers for us, and uh, uh, it was, uh, he had to, you know, it was, he was deigning to do the covers for us, so it was like he wouldn't show us even what he was going to do, he just didn't come in. Yeah. Was, uh, he did the Lone Wolf and Cub cover. Do you ever wish you spent more time in Chicago? Or was it just time to go? You left at the right time. Maybe you left too late, maybe you left too soon. If I could have done what I've done in Chicago, I would have rather stayed in Chicago. Yeah. It's just not possible. It, I mean, I always, I, and I even resisted, because when I first graduated from college, I went out to New York to look for a job, and I, I got kind of close, but I didn't get one, And but they all gave me the same advice, which is just come out here and do whatever you have to do to you know, not starve, and that's how you'll break in. And I think that would have worked. Similarly, people who want to be in Hollywood, I don't tell them to do what I did. I say, go out there and get people lunch for a while, get people coffee for a while. Um, but I kind of resisted the notion that you have to be in New York to do certain kinds of things. And it's true. It, probably less so now because of the online stuff. I'm, I'm just wondering about whether or not anybody will be able to make, and this goes back to my son, could really make uh, a living writing um, going forward as we get to a place where more and more people are willing to do it for free and consumers are becoming less and less interested in um, uh, discerning between good and, and not that great. And it's driven prices down everywhere. Just as an example, this is just a little example, I've done a few pieces, I wrote a few pieces of Time Magazine for the magazine itself, and they were like 800 word pieces for which I got paid, 
thousand uh, dollars and expenses, which back then was not great, but it was fine. And and then uh, a few years ago, they asked me to uh, write a an opinion column that would go on their you know, their website, for which they paid me fifty dollars. And I believe it probably is that way all over the place, where you know what you could get, even the New Yorker now pays less than they paid me. Like the first piece I wrote for them, I got more money than I got for the last fifteen pieces. Not all together, but you know. If you would like more information about Larry Doyle, just go to LarryDoyle.com. Uh, when you're there, you could hear his stuff from This American Life. You could read his pieces from The New Yorker. You could purchase his books, I Love You, Beth Cooper, Go Mutants, and Deliriously Happy and Other Bad Thoughts. If you'd like to follow us on Facebook, just type in Ubi Estmia in that little search bar and you'll find us. We're also on Twitter, at sign Ubi Estmia Pod. If you'd like to follow me, my name is Brandon Weatherby. Uh, follow me on Twitter. It's at sign YMTE. That stands for You, Me, Them, Everybody, which is our other podcast. The art for Ubi Estmia is by Dmitry Samarov, a fantastic Chicago artist. And our music is by Daniel Knox. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful night.